Everybody's going for those kinky boots, kinky boots. Kinky boots, it's a manly kind of fashion that you borrowed from the brutes. Borrowed from the brutes. Kinky boots. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to another edition of Kinky Boots. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And this week we are watching The Avengers, Series 1, Episode 20, Tunnel of Fear. And listening to it. Oh yes, this week we have a double treat because we've got both the recovered video version, this one does exist, it's the last one of Series 1 so far that they've recovered and we've also got the Big Finish audio adaptation. Dr. Exton, what's the pricey for this? Well, I was just going to say, interestingly, the Big Finish audio adaptation was done without a script before the episode was recovered, so there are some fairly significant differences. But we will come on to that. We will. So, plot synopsis, again taken from Dave Rogers' book, The Ultimate Avengers. Leaks of top-secret information to Europe seem to come from somewhere in Southend. Is it a coincidence that Harry Black, a recent escapee from prison, works in the local funfair? Closer examination by Keel reveals that the ghost train is more scary than it looks, and a man named Wickram is arranging the leaks. Steve gets a job at the funfair, but his identity is exposed, and Wickram sets a trap. Hypnotised by the fairground hypnotist, Steed refuses to reveal anything and is bound and gagged. Together with Claire, Black's girlfriend, he is placed in the tunnel of the ghost train to await execution. Trick cigarettes allow Steed to bluff the enemy into submission and Black is proved innocent. He was hypnotised and framed. I'm not going anywhere until I know what I'm likely to run into down there. All right then. Top secret defence information is leaking out of the country. What's it got to do with South End? Oh, look. Answer me that. I'll give you a place on next year's honours list. There's a big flap on it. Yeah. Yes, putting it very mildly. It's the top, really, security panic. We just know how the stuff is leaving the country. Is this diplomatic bag, or has that one been rather overworked lately? No, no, it's still very popular. We've got a second secretary of a certain legation. He's been under the microscope for weeks. Now, this secretary has been taking Saturday picnics at South End with a fellow called Wickram. Mm -hmm. Now, Wickram's an estate agent down there. And we think he may be the end link in an espionage chain. You think I might find something out while I'm inquiring about him? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> yes, well, I'll see you in South End, then, I suppose. Why don't you go on a nice long holiday and let us get on with our work? Huh? Well, as we said, this is one of three and a third surviving episodes from that first 26-episode run. It was announced that it had been recovered on the 3rd of October 2016, a pristine condition, 16mm telerecording, that was from a private collector. And in that respect, I do feel very, very sorry for Big Finish, who they'd put those out not long before. Uh, Whereas, you see, I don't, but we'll come on to that later. Um, Unsurprisingly, I suspect you and I have different views on it. Probably, probably, we always do. This was recorded on the 3rd of August 1961 and transmitted on the 5th of August 1961 at 8.50pm across the regions. That was in ABC, Anglia, ATV South, Tyne Tees, TV Western Wales, Western TV, Southern TV and Ulster. No scripts of any kind have survived for this one. There were 67 publicity stills and 78 telesnaps made, and the audio reconstruction 
was done by John Dorney, which can be found on Volume 6 of the Lost Episodes range. Uh, the video, it has been put out on DVD as a single episode. It's a very, very nice little set, actually. So who have we got alumni-wise? Well, we do have some Doctor Who alumni here. Maurice Perry was Captain Dent in Colony in Space, also appeared in City Beneath the Sea and an episode of Out of This World, and we'll see him twice more in The Avengers. One of the background extras, um, Julian Holloway, went on to have a very successful career and appeared as Patterson in Survival. He will turn up in an episode of The New Avengers. He was in the incredible Robert Baldick pilot, among lots and lots and lots of other things. His most recent credit is a whole host of voices in the Star Wars, the Clone Wars series. And this was his first credited performance. While we're talking about extras, Nicky Henson had his first IMDb credit with this. Uh, he went on to a very successful career, um, was a regular in EastEnders, was one of the regulars in the Frost Report. And we saw him when we did uh, the first episode of A Class Act playing um, Kate Swift's lawyer. Oh, yes, so we did. Yeah. Anthony Bate appeared in Smiley's People and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the Alec Guinness versions. Uh, he also appeared in An Englishman's Castle, Game Set and Match, Philby Burgess and McLean and Spindo. So he had quite a, a spy type career, but also appeared in Beasts, a couple of episodes of Out of the Unknown, Out of This World, and we will see him once more in The Avengers. Doris Rogers was very familiar, um, and I think I must be confusing her with somebody else. Uh, she was the regular character Aunt Millie in Robert's Robots. Um, she was Lady Brampton in Crossroads in 1966. Um, and she was Flory Wainwright in Life with the Lions. Lots of other things on her credit list, but her career kind of tailed off at the end of the 60s. For Douglas Rye, this is his only IMDb credit. And for Hazel Coppen, um, this is her first IMDb credit. And a final mention of Miranda Connell. Um, not much else to say in alumni terms, but she was and is uh, is still Mrs. Edward D'Souza. Oh, right. Another Who link there. Uh, and they'd married the year before this, so married 65 years, something like that, nearly. Uh, not quite, 62. It's a long enough time anyway. Mm. Getting on to the episode itself, what do we think? We'll start with the TV version, because that is the the definite article. The canonical rather than the fan. Rain yourself in. I'm absolutely accurate. Uh, you know that I think that there is some good fanfic, but this is fanfic. And actually, the way I way I did it was to watch the uh, the episode and then listen to the episode. Now, I likewise, I, yeah. I have to be honest. I've only watched this episode once before when it was first recovered, and I wasn't wildly impressed. And as with all of the big finishes, there's very few of them I've re-listened and I've deliberately not re-listened prior to doing the reviews for this. So it, it's kind of a, a first re-exposure for both. Again, I didn't think the big finish Tunnel of Fear was anywhere near as good as some of the others that they did at the time. Bizarrely, I felt the other way around about this one. Now, my first impression of this episode was it info dumps like a machine gun. I mean, if you're not hanging on, particularly where Steed's concerned, if you're not hanging on every word, you're really going to miss what's going on. When they're in the surgery right at the start, and he just seems to come bounding in with that ridiculous dog for no real reason whatsoever. And blinking you've missed it, there is actually a reason for it, but 
if you miss it, it just looks like a complete coincidence. And then he texts Keel into um, one of the other rooms and machine pistols information at him, which somehow Keel takes in and understands and just buggers off down to the funfair. That whole first sequence just seemed to be a massive building of coincidence on building of coincidence on building of coincidence. The doctor's surgery that this bloke happens to find is Dr. Keel's. Um, Steed just happens to turn up. He just happens to be involved in something that happened in South End when they know that um, the secrets are going missing through South End. And it's just a coincidence after coincidence and tying things together with a massive wing and a prayer. And, you know, things could have been going missing through the South End post office or a local pub or something, and they'd have spent all their time fanning about in a, a fun fair and got none of it. So it, the whole setup of the episode was a massive set of coincidences. We've had this once or twice before, and I can't think of an example off the top of my not, head. Not this bad. No, really it, this is this the bad. worst example of it, where it's the flimsiest of hooks for the rest of the episode. And when you're in that scenario, it becomes quite difficult to take the rest of it seriously. Now, bear in mind, you have always said this is the weakest of the surviving episodes. Yes, um, I having am, rewatched it, I, I I still think it's the weakest of the surviving episodes. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Um, it's not terrible, but you're watching it more for the set pieces and the spectacle of it rather than it being a cracking good story. Now, there are bits of it which I really did like. The investigation into why Harry Black had committed this crime and Keel knew that something was amiss because his memory was just, there was a, a huge chunk of his memory missing. So the way that they, it was unpicked and they reenacted the crime, seemingly undetected. I did actually like that. It was very clever. And Steed, he is just in command of the situation all the way through. But again, Steed rocks up with this dancing troupe, just sets up, and nobody questions it. Uh, now, if he's replaced somebody, why is nobody at the funfair clocked that the usual guy has been replaced? And he has a terrible accent as a barker. It's absolutely <laughs> awful. So there's a lot of silliness in it that I didn't particularly care for. The carnival uh, sets were really nicely done. They were. And indeed, the actors who were portraying those roles, they gave it as much as they could. I particularly like the, uh, the shrimp woman and the fortune teller. I thought they were excellent. Well, the fortune teller was a real wasted opportunity because it was just a sort of opportunity to to have a little set piece and she could have been more involved in the the plot and in fact and this is jumping ahead to the big finish bit i kind of thought she was going to turn out to be the one doing the hypnotizing um in this she isn't it's just a convenient place for them to go and meet and chat and it might as well be a bus shelter which is a pity because that set looked great and she was an interesting character and i'd have liked to have seen her more involved what i was going to say about the sets and the carnival set, it really reminded me of the market sequence in The Underwater Menace. Oh, I can see where you're going with that. Yeah, there was yeah, there was a lot to the it. Whole, yeah, the whole big set, um, camera panning around, lots of people going around all over the place. I thought that was really nice. But there were lots of tight shots with lots of people milling about, so they made a very small set feel like it was a nice, expansive fun for... I, again, the filming of this and the way that they've done it... It's always very cleverly done. We saw the same in Girl on the Trapeze. 
I really like that. I did like the character of, of, of Mrs. Black. I like the fact that she gets front and center involved when they're hanging around the fun fair at night and she's the one that belts the night watchman over the head with a pipe <laughs> now slightly dodgy reference to domestic violence there but it is of its time and the other thing that i, I liked was the whole kitchen sink drama years before a taste of honey where claire has got herself pregnant by somebody else while harry's been inside it does beg the question how long has harry been inside and how long has this spiring been going on for but his mother standing up for claire and saying I'm on this girl's side. This is not her fault. You make your mind up how much involvement you want. So I really like that. A nice bit of sort of downbeat, gritty 60s realism. There were some bits I liked less so. There was an awful lot of gratuitous flash on display. And Act 2 opens with a crotch shot. Yes, it does. <laughs> and, and a little bit of a bum fondle. I'll, I'll come on to that in a second. But visually, it focuses right in on the, the woman's crotch and then the camera pulls out and she's there belly dancing. Claire being there in a bra and knickers has a little bit more to do with the plot because that's how she distracts the policeman so that uh, Keelan Black can run away. Yeah, she stood in her houseboat ironing in her underwear. So there is a there is a reason for her to be half clad. But I notice when she's climbing out of the boat... I'd say Ian Hendry rather than Keel. Uh, he cops a good eyeful. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, by then she's clad in her industrial strength fishing gear, isn't she? Um, massive, massive Guernsey. There's, there's one particular shot, and I thought, you're having your eyeful there, Ian. Could be wrong. I can't remember the exact shot now, but I do remember it did leap out. And again, this is another example of Steve Steed being an unbelievably crap undercover agent because the first thing, thing he does okay he's going to draw inten- attention to himself by being the new person there so he might as well be front and center and making him so noisy rather than looking suspicious and hiding in the background but the first thing he does is crack on to the, the girlfriend of the ghost um, train driver yeah ghost, ghost train driver and ends up getting kaylied by him well what is the point? If he if he was going to do the playing the part of sleazy bloke who's just joined the, the funfair, crack onto one of the other girls, not the one who's got a gorilla in tow. That didn't make any sense. I thought that was some cunning ploy to draw him out of the woodwork. An uh, but awful it lot wasn't. Of it doesn't make sense. The ending was massively rushed. Agreed. Again, there was a massive machine gun info dump about the um, the listening array being underneath the ghost train. The very first scene where the bloke in the bowler hat and umbrella um, looking massively out of place goes, goes into the ghost train and then leaves his umbrella behind. What on earth was all of that about? That made no sense. That was just a sort of attention grab. I don't know. Just before I come on to the ending, what the hell is the title all about? tunnel of fear the ghost train's hardly in it it's yeah and the, did it did i miss claire and steed being tied up in the ghost ghost train itself because i thought they were tied up in that little office thing oh they were but then they burrowed underneath the ghost train how they knew that that's where they had to get to i don't know because i don't think harry had any memory of this and harry wasn't there at the time because he was with keel um it was steed and claire yeah so the leap from A to B is a little bit foggy. Except that Harry's job was the ghost train. Yeah, but it doesn't uh, follow that he necessarily knew that there was this big relay underneath it. And Steed immediately works out from looking at a few wires how many signals it's interpreting. And there's a, oh, it, it was just all a massive techno babble fudge. 
And then there's the exploding cigarette, a bluff. Oh, um, no, it wasn't a bluff because you don't remember at the end, he, he says, oh, I, I'm glad I didn't have to use it. These things cost a fortune. I took that to mean it was your actual genuine what it was supposed to be. Oh, but so I, did I. What I mean is he did it in such a way that it sounded like a massive bluff. It was so obvious. Yeah, and it it's a, a very convenient thing that he just happened to be carrying these cigarettes along and hasn't used them before or since when they would have been quite useful. <laughs> I've no idea whether these were these were a genuine thing or not, so I've no idea how plausible they are. Certainly, with with modern techniques, you could do something like that, but I don't know whether you would have been able to do that amount of damage with that small an explosive. But you know, this is twenty five years before I started learning chemistry, so. It, I don't know what their, their capabilities would have been then. I'm not entirely sure that even the best plastic explosive now would be able to blow up an entire room full of people with half a cigarette's worth of Semtex or whatever. It was a, a bit of a leap of the imagination there, particularly since the technology was um, supposedly what they were all carrying around during the war. He, he spots Wickr uh, Wickram as this war veteran and said, well, you'll recognise these from the war, won't you? So yeah, what, he, what he was talking about was Korea. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. It, but even so, still kids, further back in the past, technology-wise, I mean. By a handful of years. I mean, the, the thing is that it, it doesn't seem to raise suspicion that he's um, been in this Korean prison room, war camp for a, co a couple of years and then comes back and, oh, we'll just assume that nothing happened while he was in there, whereas actually it's kind of a Manchurian candidate thing 10 years before its time. I didn't not enjoy it. I've just... Um... There were too many leaps of logic, and it, it just takes me out of a story when things start doing that. I mean, there were some very nice bits in it. So Keel and Black recreating the crime to re-trigger his memories uh, so that they can, they can work out who the... Firstly, work out that it was something that couldn't have been done by one person. Mm. And secondly, to work out who that second person was. I thought that was really nicely done. Yet that whole safe-breaking scene was probably one of the best things in it because there was a logical progression of events and Ian Henry got to shine in that. And two good, strong female performances. So Mrs. Black is roll her sleeves up, I'm coming, I'm getting involved, this is my boy, where's a lead pipe, thunk. Um, <laughs> she's actually the only one that hits anybody in this entire episode, isn't she? Uh, no, there's a fight scene between Steed and Foster. Oh, yes, Maxie. Yeah. Well, moving on to the audio adaptation of this, this was done in 2016 and released a few months before the episode itself actually turned up. It was done from scratch. There was no script to work from for this. And the uh, John Dorney, I think, has given an interview very soon after Tunnel of Fear was recovered to say that every single plot point that he could have got wrong, he got wrong. When you actually see the original episode, the fortune teller is effectively a red herring. It's a throwaway gag for a scene. And you kind of don't expect that to be happening when you're writing. You're trying to justify everything and you're slightly forgetting that some bits are likely to be slightly padded or filling in time while other things are happening over the other side of the set. It's very odd watching the original episode because it ever so slightly feels at points as if someone has taken my script, adapted it and traveled back in time with it and like made it in the past. But only at times. There's a striking amount uh, where it veers away. And this is even from the same basic storyline, the same order of scenes, the same set of characters doing roughly the same sort of things. There's an awful lot of variation and moments where it veers away. Um, 
I had a 50-50 choice and almost every time there was a 50-50 choice of it could be this or it could be that, I picked the wrong one. So there is a sequence where they look in the, in the safe and in the audio version it's too much money to just be the takings of a funfair. In the original TV episode it's the takings from a funfair. Uh, the final sequence which involves a cigarette bomb, in my version it's a bluff, in the original version it's actually a bomb. And all of these little things where it could have gone way, could have gone the other. There are some bits where it gets really close. I think that I feel the Steed stuff is pretty close. Um, some of his sort of Barker speech is are almost like word for word what I put. And uh, that I feel I'm quite pleased about because he was the character that's obviously, as we've said earlier, so iconic and brilliant that uh, to kind of feel that I got even closer to doing what the original writers did on it uh, is very flattering and satisfying. Now, I listened to that interview. It's on the DVD release from uh, Studio Canal. And I listened to that interview before I listened to the play itself. So I was going into it thinking, these are essentially going to be two wildly different stories. And they are. They're not that different. Oh, they are. Well, there are, you know, divergences. But the basic linear thrust of the, the episode it's a lot closer to what happened on screen than I would have expected from someone who was writing this effectively blind with a handful well, exactly. of pictures and a synopsis. Well, if you think about it, didn't you say 40-odd telesnaps? 60-odd, uh, yeah, 67, I think. Yeah. yeah, so that's more than one a minute. So you've, you've got a, a good idea of what's going on visually, which is why things like the the disappearing man at the beginning who leaves his umbrella behind that is then never referenced again. And you, you start thinking, well, what was the point of that? The only point of that was to tie into the, the telly snap that they've got, presumably of the umbrella being there. I have to say in Big Finish's defense, there is a much more plausible and logical reason for Black's involvement. The whole steed broke him out of prison because we've seen that happen a couple of times before mm. and then set him up working undercover building his um building up his cover by working crappy jobs and um in carnivals and things to be able to go back to south end now quite why he has to, to do that to be able to go back to south end when south end would be the most logical place for him to go back to immediately after having escaped but in the big finish version black is an utter liability and cannot follow even the simplest instructions and just blunders from place to place to place stay here you um you will ruin everything three seconds later stumble in ruins everything <laughs> you know you can be as rough as you like with me but treat the lady carefully you dress like a gentleman wickram why not act like one soon a few cuts and bruises will be the least of our worries mr steed you're harry's girl is that right that's right john steed good to meet you I only wish it were in more salubrious circumstances. You know, Wickram, when you said you were going to tie up loose ends, I didn't think you meant it literally. It is unfortunately necessary. Do you know where you are, Mr. Steed? South End, yes. I'm good at geography. You are within the tunnels of the ghost train. Very shortly, we are going to operate the ride. The carriage will hurtle down here towards you. I don't imagine the result will be especially pretty. No! When we open properly in the morning... Everyone will assume you are killed by the first passengers of the day. A tragic accident. You can do what you like to me, but leave her out of this. It's got nothing to do with her. Oh, that's where you're wrong, Steed. She's the cover story. Two lovers messing about in the ghost train, perhaps? Getting a fright they weren't expecting? The fright of their lives? Goodbye. I hope you enjoy the ride. Clear the tunnel! 
Scream as much as you like. It's the middle of the night. No one will hear. How long does this ride last? About a minute. Then when they start it up, we won't have long. See if you can loosen the ropes and scream. Scream for your life. Help! Help! Come on, I should be able to get us out of these. Help! Help! Anybody! Help! Help! The whole thing about Tyne Clare and Steed up in the ghost train and they're going to be killed when the ghost train comes rumbling down the tracks. Have you ever seen how fast a ghost train goes? Well, yeah, but they are quite weighty. They're really slow. Yeah, but it depends where they're tied up. Are they tied well, really, up? Really? They're, they're slow all the way around. They, they have to be because ghost trains and tunnels of love and that, that kind of thing generally have very windy, twisty tracks to fit into a, a very small space. I know you still wouldn't want to be hit by one of them. No, you wouldn't, but it's unlikely to kill you, particularly if you're you're tied up standing up because it's going to hit your legs. It's not something you'd like to happen, but it's not going to be a killed you outright. Yes. I didn't like the fact that they downplayed Claire and Mrs. Black's character so much. Mrs. Black became kind of a a comedy character and a very two-faced. I never liked that girl. She's no... um, She's no better than she ought to be. And then as soon as Claire, Claire goes missing, it's, oh, I've always liked her. Well, yeah, but that's <laughs> that's oh, in-laws that, everywhere. Uh, that is two-faced old biddies, and I completely get that. And actually that bit was was quite nicely nicely done. It's just neither of them are particularly dynamic. It's more obvious in the big finish that the belly dancing is kind of a not particularly subtle cover-up for sex work. Mm. Um because Steed's doing the whole, oh, Carla will do your private show, won't you, my dear? She, she's terribly good at it. And then talking to Carla, you're wasted here. I'll talk to some people and get you set up uptown. Th- that, that's all very dodgy. And the, a very odd thing that he, he suddenly starts trusting her implicitly. So when he gets knocked out by accident, she's the one that brings him around. He takes her around to Mrs. Black's. He, he, basically lets her know exactly what's going on he she's there in the room when he's talking to 110 um so hearing exactly what's going on he's, he's saying oh carla you stay here while all, all of us are going off very nice of him to assume that she's not going to rob mrs black's house and it's a little naive to assume that she's not going to turn around and rat on him to whoever a previous employer was so th- that was a little bit odd mm. that's a, a minor sticking point so comparing the two Comparing the two, I in this instance, I think it's the first of any of the surviving ones I've, I've said this about. I prefer the Big Finish version. It was so just what? Good God, man! Both had good performances. I thought it. Uh, minor niggles aside, it was a more cohesive and logical plot. Mm. Um, I think it ju- it just made more sense. It was the fact that everything wasn't a hundred miles an hour. You could actually follow the bloody thing, and. There, there was a logic to it. I mean, in an ideal world, they would have had the script. I think if they'd had the script, we would have had a better audio episode. As it stands, See, I don't. I think if they'd if they'd followed this script, because it's not a good script, I, I'd have been saying the same thing that I said about um, Girl on the Trapeze or or the Frighteners that the audio is a pale imitation of the video with this because it's such a markedly different plot and i think it's a better plot i think the audio has the edge but it's only because they don't follow the same script yeah there is that about it but i mean i was meaning more in terms of the characters so harry would have been a little bit closer to the screen version uh mrs black would have been closer to the screen version etc 
I agree. I think that the the dialogue is just better and more explanatory. And the plot. uh, Yes, and the plot is more explanatory in the John Dorney version. The John Cruise original, it's just a bit A follows B and leads to D, and then you might go back to see if we get around to it, but we've got F and G to deal with. Oh, and we've forgotten about E, haven't we? So it's all... It's all jumping around and, and leaps of logic and silliness, which I, I didn't particularly care for in TV. Um, the big finish, it was just a, I won't say more leisurely pace, but it was a more logical pace and everything had a bit more room to breathe. So yeah, that, for that reason, uh, even though inevitably there were divergences from what happened on screen, I still think it's a better episode on audio. Yes, I I agree. And and I think the the reason it is, is because of those divergences. What it does mean is that it's even more frustrating that the videos of the episodes that don't survive and don't have a a script are missing because you get to see just how big a difference the actual real canonical version is from the the fanfic version. And that's not to say it isn't good fanfic. Um, In this instance, I prefer prefer the fanfic to the, the real. That doesn't alter, alter the fact that it's fanfic. But yeah, I preferred the audio to the, the video on this one. Uh, but I am going to give kudos here to John Dorney for, with scant material, let's be honest, he's got at least some way to where the TV episode was. Yes, there are divergences, log- you know, very understandably, but I was expecting something wildly different, and that's not what we got in the end. So I think it's time to raise this in Masterminds. We'll start with the TV version. What do we think? Three. Yep, I'll give it three out of five. Again, it's not terrible. It kept me entertained for 50 minutes. I wasn't bored. There's just too many loopholes to be rating this any higher. It's not um, a classic, and it, but it is one that we have. So be grateful for small things, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it, to be honest, it only just scrapes in as a three because I didn't find it massively entertaining. But it's not bad enough to be a two, so... Yeah, I'm going to sit with the three. Moving on to the Big Finish audio. Four. Yep, likewise, four. I think a lot of that, again, I will will say is kudos for taking something which isn't actually that brilliant and turning it into something which is quite good, even down to something as simple as the opening sequence. Now, it's not clear in the opening sequence that a man has disappeared when the ghost train comes round. It just sounds like the opening of a funfair with a slightly sinister musical sting at the end. But it's never in any way made explicit that somebody's gone on the ghost train and not come back out. But it does set the scene really nicely. Except that 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 is what's happened. But it's Wickram basically basically being absent-minded because he's the one that goes onto the ghost train and he just leaves his umbrella behind mm. and there is no mystery to it at all other than if he needs to go on the ghost train to, every time he gets into that headquarters it will look incredibly suspicious that there is <laughs> a this, man in a bowler hat <laughs> and a state agent in a bowler hat who however many times a day that he needs to go into the the, the headquarters rides on a, a ghost train and doesn't come out even if customers didn't notice him not coming out the other people in the fun fair will have done and have gone, you know what, this is really sus. We will come on to a much better episode in season two set in a, a fun fair. Which I've not seen yet, so it'll be another one to surprise me with. 
But before we sign off, there is just one last thing I'd like to say about the DVD presentation of this. This was put out as a single episode release after the complete series had been put out on a really nice DVD box set from Studio Canal. It's a single episode release, but there is a lovely little booklet with it that goes into lots of detail. There's also a few reconstructions on there from Series 1 that have been done by Alan and Alice Hayes. And also a couple of interviews that they've unearthed. There's one with Ian Hendry from 1962 and one with Patrick McNee from 1964. Patrick, why do you think the Avengers series has been such a success? There are many reasons, I think. Uh, firstly, it's a straight adventure story. It started with Ian Hendry, who now does a great deal on the movies, um, in 1960, the end of 1960. And then we ran for a long time. And then the actors did a terrible thing. They went on strike for more money. And so we were off the air. And then we came back again, and uh, we had a new character, a woman, uh, who came in and eventually became Kathy Gale and very famous. Has the character of John Steed in The Avengers changed or developed in any way since the series began? Yes, definitely. He was originally um, a counterpart to a doctor who was a very honest, straightforward fellow, and he was a sort of butterfly and a very sophisticated sort of person. Uh, in the early days, we were a little liable to make it up as we went along anyway, and you, some of the basic sort of plot formulas get a bit lost. Now, I don't know where they've come from. There's no real context for them, but they're, they're just nice little examples. It's particularly nice to see the interview with Ian Hendry, because I'm not aware that he did many interviews about the Avengers, if any. But he does, he does make a pointed reference to it and the fact that he, he just moved on at the end of the series. Ian, most people here in Ulster, I think, uh, remember you particularly for your part as Dr. David Keel in the Avengers series. Really, indeed. Yes. Did you enjoy this part particularly? You did seem to get a lot of sly humour and so forth in it with Patrick McNeil. Yes, I enjoyed it very much. Um, we, we were in right from the ground floor on that part and uh, Pat and I really created the characters and built them up and uh, our relationship together yes we enjoyed it very much and uh, after 30 weeks of playing this guy i'd had quite enough of playing him yes and i enjoyed it while i was doing it Do you, is it a bad thing for an actor i mean uh, to continue uh, in a typed part like well this is a mute point today i think basically um I, I think professionally basically it is a bad thing but quite apart from that i'm in, in the business um to play different people that's the joy i get out of the business and uh, after 30 episodes of one character, I've had enough. Have you seen those? No. Uh, no just, I, don't, I don't tend to do extras. No, they're, they're very, very short. They're only a couple of minutes each. Uh, but they're, they're just nice little windows into the past. So, uh, But considering what they had, they've turned what could have been a very bland and, to be honest, quite expensive single-episode release into something that's well worth buying for Avengers fans. There's plenty on there, plus a, a lengthy interview with John Dorney about the whole range. But on that note, I shall sign us off. It's slightly longer than usual this time, but that's because effectively we've been watching two different episodes. Uh, but next time we're back with episode 21, which is The Far Distant Dead. We've run out of all the film ones now, so this is, we're back to audio for the remaining ones. Thank there's you. only another six, isn't there? And then uh, we're on to season two. Yep, only another six left. But until next time, thank you for listening, everyone. I hope we've entertained you and informed you. We'll be back next week. Bye now. They'll be back. You can depend on it. (laughs) 
Kinky Boots featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, with thanks to Studio Canal, Big Finish Productions, and Alan Hayes. Title music was performed by Honor Blackman and Patrick McNee, and the program was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.